Let me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We started this fall a series uh, through 1 Corinthians entitled Walking with Christ in a Corinthian World. That uh, the, the more you look at our culture around us, the more it, it seems to reflect the kind of uh, religious and moral chaos that was Corinth, a very uh, pagan kind of world. And when I say pagan, uh, that doesn't mean irreligious. There, there really is no irreligious person. Humans are made to be religious. It just comes down to how they express that belief system and those practices. And at Corinth, uh, it became a, a pattern of mingling the sort of worst vices of human existence into the fabric of their religion. Uh, you could actually practice uh, your immorality in devotion to the deities, right? And, and it, so it was a, a world of, of moral, religious, spiritual chaos. And, and it doesn't take much to look around and see that we're in a culture that is heading down that Corinthian kind of slide. So how do we walk with Christ in that world? This book will help us see that. And, and Paul, rather than starting with the problems outside, actually starts with the problems inside, which is generally the best way to work at it. Because it's easy to look out the window and, and be all grumpy about how bad the world is going and ignore actually how bad it can become inside the house of God and, and how bad it might be when we look in the mirror. The window is always much more appealing than the mirror when it comes to spiritual judgment. We don't like to look in the mirror. But what Paul does is begin to address that by the problems in their church, the first of which is divisions. And, and those divisions, uh, you could say it in a simplified way, is are divisions over the message and over the messengers. And, and what he does is actually sort of works this way. He, he tackles the problem of being divided over the messengers. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. He, he, he mentions that, but then gets into the issue of what's the message that there's some division over. And that's the issue of the cross and whether or not the cross should be recrafted into a message that's more attractive to the Jews and to the Greeks. It is Paul, the message of the cross, a crucified Messiah is offensive to Jewish people and it's moronic to the Greeks. And we're not gonna get anywhere in this world, Paul, if we keep preaching a message that is inherently offensive to a large part of our audience or is treated like it's moronic or foolish by the rest of the audience. And Paul says, uh, it is actually the wisdom of God, right? In, in, and in God's wisdom, he has chosen to confound the wisdom of this world. It is actually God's divine strategy to have not only a message about, but the very way of salvation be offensive to the Jews and foolish to the Greeks. 
Because unless they are humbled before God, they can never be saved. Right? If, you, if any way of salvation leaves the sinner able to boast in anything other than the Lord, then it actually doesn't bring salvation. So this message and the way this message is to be communicated is in fact divine wisdom from God. And we should not be embarrassed of it. We should not try to embellish it. We certainly can't recoil from the responsibility. He's going to get to the, he's going to get to the messengers. And we're almost at that section because I asked you to turn to chapter three. Look at verse five of, of chapter of verse four and five. For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? So he's going to start talking about the messengers. In fact, look over to chapter four, verse six, because he tells us what he's doing all the way through chapter three and into chapter four. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. All right, so, so he tackles first the message and now he's actually turning to the messengers. And we're at a section that's sort of right between the two and, and going to help us understand, uh, in a sense, what the, what the nub of the problem at Corinth is. Back in chapter two, he, he, he talks about the message that he has being wisdom, right? It is wisdom among those who are mature. So why is it that the Corinthians are not getting it? What is the real problem at Corinth? Look, if you would, at verses one through four of chapter three, because this text helps us understand what the problem is. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men or humans? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Paulus, are you not mere men or acting as if you're just natural men? Look back to chapter two, first part of verse six. Yet we do not, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. And so he has raised the question of this wisdom being among those who are mature. Chapter two, verse 14, he tells why the lost can't get it, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But those who are spiritual, verse 15, but he who is a spiritual appraises all things, and yet he himself is appraised by no one. So that's why then he says in chapter three, verse one, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men. All right, so, so they're divided. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And, and the nub is the, if I could put it this way, sort of the sophistication of the gospel to make it more attractive, more palatable. 
And, and Paul says, wait, this message is actually God's wisdom. And we're speaking God's wisdom among those who are mature. Implication being, if you were mature, you would recognize this. Right? And then he says, the natural person cannot get this because he thinks it's foolishness. Right, So your idea to make this more acceptable to lost people is completely disregarding the nature of things. You can't make it more acceptable to lost people because the very fundamental nature of the message is objectionable to them. They will not accept the premise of it because the premise of it it actually condemns them in their sin. So they just look at it and say, no, that's foolishness. But why wouldn't believers accept it? We can understand why lost people might not accept it until God calls them, but why might believers not accept it? It's because they're not mature. We speak wisdom among those who are mature. So now Paul comes back to that in 3, 1 through 4 and addresses the question as to why aren't they mature? Why is it that they have not grown up spiritually? All right, so so here's the the basic truth that's in this text. I'm going to just state it. I'm going to try and show you where it is and and then spend some time thinking about the ramifications of that and why this is so important for us. Here's, if I, and I've said it, try to say it in a way that maybe, maybe would stick in, in your thinking, all right? Sinful practices stunt spiritual progress. All right, sinful practices stunt spiritual progress. That's, that's what he's saying here. So let me, let me show you that from the text. And I'm going to start at the back end of it, of spiritual progress, why I'm stating it that way. Notice he says in verse 1, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, and notice the next phrase, as to infants in Christ. So he puts a contrast here between infants in Christ and spiritual men. Right, and, and he calls them being infants in Christ as if they're living like they're not spiritual people. Right? They're they're fleshly. Notice he describes that in in uh in verse three, he says, You are still fleshly. But here's the progress point. Look at verse two. I gave you milk to drink and not solid food. And you know what that's an illustration of, right? So it's it's, he talks about infants in Christ and he's talking about baby food versus adult food, okay? Which by the way is solid. Just want you to make sure you're clear on that. It's solid food, it's meat. That's what, that's what adults eat, all right? So he's going from milk to meat. He, he's talking about progress spiritually. They are infants So they need infant accessible kind of food. They should be spiritual, which would mean they would be getting solid food. That's the progress 
that he's talking about. And that's not unique to this passage. We'll talk about that a little bit more. So, so the normal pattern of the Christian life should be spiritual progress from infancy in Christ. That is, you're a newborn in Christ to spiritual maturity. That's the normal pattern for it. Why do I say stunts? All right, what stunts that spiritual progress? So notice in verse one, he says, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, right? I could not speak to you. Then drop down to to verse two. After he says, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. Notice what he says here, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not yet able for you are still fleshly. The very language of it is showing us that the, the, the sin issues that he's going to address are the cause for them not being able to receive the truth, right? You could not receive it. You were not able to receive it. I could not speak to you because you were not able to receive it because you're fleshly, right? Because you're choosing this path of sin, you are not able to receive what will cause you to grow. That's why I'm saying sinful practices stunt spiritual progress. That when we choose to, to go contrary to the word of God, we are not only violating it, we're actually putting an obstacle in our own path towards spiritual growth, right? We're, if, if I could, if I could uh, put it this way, right? The, the pathway to spiritual maturity is straight ahead of us by God's word. And when we choose not to follow it, we actually are not only going off path, but we're damaging our ability to receive the thing that will help us grow. It's a double whammy, right? I not only have chosen the wrong path, I've taken a path that, that increases my inability to receive the food that I need, okay? Probably the, you know, the way it might make sense illustratively, right? I mean, how many, how many moms in this room have said, don't ruin your appetite? Why, why, what, why, why are you saying it? Well, you're preparing a meal that's going to be good and healthy for them, and they're wanting to nibble on something, and it's not healthy, and it's going to dull their appetite. It's going to actually make them unable to receive the benefit of what you've prepared for them. And that's what Paul's saying is sinful practices stunt our spiritual progress because they affect our ability to receive the solid food. You could not receive it. You're not yet able to receive it because you're still fleshly, right? So so sin has that kind of stunting uh, effect on it. Now, where do I get the idea of sinful practices from? Well, you can see it pretty clearly in verse 3. For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, 
Are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere humans? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? The idea of jealousy here is an intense negative feeling over another's achievements or success. It's the way the standard Greek dictionary translates it. So the jealousy is that you have intense negative feelings over somebody else's achievements or success. You can see what that would mean in this context. I'm of Apollos versus I'm of Paul means I don't like the success that Paul is having. I don't want to see Paul be the person of influence in this church. I want Apollos, and the reason they want Apollos is because they think that Apollos is the banner for themselves, right? There's really, we'll see in chapter four, there's really no conflict between Paul and Apollos. This is people, this is people picking their celebrity to get what they want, right? And, and so they don't want to see Paul successful in his efforts to influence and help the church at Corinth because they're full of jealousy. And in all probability, it's not just like, like let's say the people who are saying, I'm of Apollos. They're not really of Apollos because Apollos has no problem with Paul. So they're using Apollos to their advantage. And in fact, it may be that they're really genuinely against Paul, but Paul's not even there. So their problem really is with the people who are listening to Paul, right? They're trying to marginalize Paul's influence in their church because they're against the Pauline crowd. Paul's saying, hey, this is the way God said we should do it. And they're saying, listen, we need to do what God said. And if they can go against Paul, it weakens Paul's influence. And it's these people that they're jealous of. You people have control of our church and we don't want you to have control of our church. We don't want to see you succeed in what you're trying to do. We're jealous and then strife. It's an issue of contention or discord or fighting, right? They, they actually are creating a rivalry or contention over who's going to be the voice of authority and stability and health in the church. And both of these are described as being fleshly practices. Sin, you're, you're operating like uh, unredeemed human people. Okay, so, so here's the deal. You, you know, I, I, will, I actually would not like give this assignment to you because I wouldn't want you to fill your, your days with watching all the garbage that's happening in our culture, right? But, but all you have to do is look around us and you can see people, I'm of this person, I'm of that person, and they're willing to fight and, and they're angry or jealous that someone starts to get some success and they have to tear that success down. Right, they got to do some. Well, that person, that person's evil, or their motives are wrong, or this, this, that. Right, the whole culture around us. If you turn on the news, or you open up a, you know, a, a website that's talking about what's happening in the political realm, or in this, that, it's just like, yeah. Right, it's got to be 
contention and it's filled with strife and it's motivated by jealousy, right? I can't let this person have any appearance of success because then it will hurt my agenda. So I've got to do whatever I can to undercut that success, to minimize that success, to to attack that success. So we can look outside the church and we can see that and we can think that's just wrong. But how many times does it happen in the church too? Right? Someone starts to experience some fruitfulness and people get jealous of that fruitfulness and so they have to call it into question a little. Well, you know, they must be, they must be doing X, Y, or Z or, you know, I'm not so sure that that's as big as they think it is. And, and people within the assembly of Christ can sometimes have these evil twins of jealousy and strife because they're living just like people who don't know Jesus. That's what he means by like mere humans. You're operating the same way as lost people operate, full of jealousy and strife. And when those things are present in a person or a congregation, it stunts spiritual progress. It it actually adversely affects it because both of those are self-centered and the fruit of pride. And that's why these two things, jealousy and strife, show up in Galatians chapter 5 under the works of the flesh. So when he says you're still fleshly, he's simply saying, listen, These characteristics, these responses to people around you are actually the works of the flesh, not the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit of God will not make you jealous of some other person. He will make you jealous of the Lord's glory and zealous for Him, but He will not have you be the center of this that's saying, they're getting something that I wanted. That's what jealousy is. They're getting recognition that I feel like I should have gotten. They're getting, they're getting opportunities that I want. They're me, works of the flesh. I'm going to do something to resist that strife. It might not be the open warfare, uh, but it might be the silent whisper, the gossip that could call into question somebody because you don't want to see them succeed. And it fills up the church, right? People are willing to talk about everybody, but never talk to them to see it change, right? And and if we're comfortable talking about the problems of other people without pursuing some avenue to help them, then we're just gossiping. And it comes out of a heart of jealousy and strife. If we really care, Jesus said, about the sin, 
we would first examine our own heart, then we'll be able to help them, right? So we have to look in the mirror and then move toward them, right? Sinful practices stunt spiritual progress. I hope you can see how the text details that out. Let me suggest three implications of that for our, for our thinking. The first would be this, is that we can say, based on this, all right, that maturity is not exclusively knowledge, right? And Paul will come back to that in chapter 8, where he says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, right? So the thing that's blocking their progress to spiritual maturity is not just a lack of knowledge. It's actually a sinful disposition of their heart. Okay, and and here's the reason why I'd emphasize this is that sometimes people can be jealous and full of strife who know a lot of the Bible. Right, You, you realize that? If you allow your heart to be full of jealousy, it doesn't somehow evacuate your brain. You might be able to give me all the same answers that you could have given me when you weren't jealous and you weren't full of strife. Because knowledge alone does not produce maturity. Right? You have to have knowledge that is translated into love. Right? Because Paul's not against knowledge when he says knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. What he's saying is you don't really know the truth the way you think you do if it doesn't translate into edifying behavior. So you have put a disconnect between what you know and how that knowledge should be lived if you're allowing jealousy and strife to be in your life. Right? So... Knowledge alone does not mark off maturity. And I think it's really important for us to know that because it can be easy for us to confuse. And here's what I mean by that. I'll come, I may come back to this, but I may not. So I'm going to say it right now, okay? If I, if I talk about, uh, if I talk about a, a kind of spiritual decline that goes from a close walk with the Lord to a kind of, coldness that comes into your heart and starts to exhibit itself in being deceived by sin, that didn't happen because somehow you had amnesia and you forgot everything that you knew. It came because you started to love things that you shouldn't love, the center of which is you. You start to see the world as about you instead of about Christ. And you begin to move downward in a way that ends up sometimes not just in coldness, but in utter failure spiritually. And that's why sometimes you can have people who give the impression of walking with the Lord and serving God because they're riding on the, the, the coattails of knowledge. Right? I mean, I've got 
40 years worth of sermons. I could stand up and expound on them like crazy. And it's possible that I might not be having any current fresh walk with the Lord because I'm relying on my accumulated knowledge. And that's why sometimes people who you think are up here, all of a sudden you find out they're actually way down here because at some point, at some point, what's in the heart is going to be exposed. And at some point, it's not going to fly that you can answer all the questions when your heart is not committed to living out those answers. It will be hollow at some point. And we need to make certain we don't confuse accumulated knowledge with spiritual maturity. Right? You can't confuse the two. Please do not hear me saying, so be stupid for Jesus. Right? You are supposed to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord. You are supposed to be freshly feeding yourself on the word of God. But here's the nexus, the connection with this passage. You actually won't be going from milk to meat if your heart isn't right. Because they were not able to receive it. Right? They, they actually couldn't progress to solid food because their heart was not right. And you've got to recognize that we all have to guard ourselves on that. Okay. So maturity is not knowledge. It's not giftedness. Chapter one, verse seven says that they lack nothing in gifts, right? They lack nothing in gifts, one seven. But chapter three has to go, but I couldn't give you solid food. So don't confuse giftedness with maturity. Right, we tend to do that. Some of the boy, look at it, boy, they're such a great this or great that. Look at how this is happening. Look at how God's using them. And we go, boy, God's using them. They must be spiritually close to God. And, and here's what I'd say is, I don't think Balaam's donkey was that close to God. And God used them. I don't think Cyrus was close to God at all. And God used him, right? Because God can use whomever he wants to use. He's God. And because God picks a donkey or picks a pagan king and uses him to accomplish his purpose does not mean an endorsement of the spirituality of the donkey or the pagan king. Right now, again, don't hear me wrong, right? We should long to be fruitful and used by God, but we cannot confuse that with some statement of our spiritual maturity. Because you know who was out with the 11 preaching the good news, casting out demons, doing great things? Judas. Okay. And Judas's fruitfulness that we would look at was no endorsement of him. And in Matthew 7, Jesus says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not perform miracles? 
And I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. Right, so we cannot, we, we love to look at the visible effects of somebody's ministry and then draw a conclusion about the instrument when what we're supposed to do is draw a conclusion about the master. Look what God did, not what that instrument did, right? We're supposed to recognize there's not a direct correlation between spiritual maturity and giftedness, nor accumulated knowledge. And I would actually say as well, maturity is not the equivalent of, of experience, right? Because the, and this is an implication. The other two I quoted your text, but I believe this is an, uh, I think a necessary implication of this. These Corinthians had been saved for a while Right? Paul had gone there and preached and they'd come to Christ and he says, I could not speak to you as what you ought to be. Right, So the length of their Christian experience does not have a direct corollary with their spiritual maturity. Let me put it another way. You could be saved for a long time and not be spiritually mature. Just because you've been a Christian for a long time doesn't mean that you've been growing for a long time. All right, it's possible for you to, to, to linger back where you shouldn't be. Because here's what the writer of Hebrews said. Though you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, right? So the writer of Hebrews is saying, you, you, ought to, you ought to be over here in the teaching category, but you're actually back where you still need somebody to teach you because, and he says it this way, you become sluggish, right? You're not being diligent about skillfully using the word of righteousness and having your senses trained to discern between good and evil. So you are still depending on milk rather than meat because you may have been a Christian for a while, but you haven't been applying yourself diligently to the task of using the word of righteousness, of discerning between good and evil. So you're still at the milk, milk level when you ought to be at the meat. And, and I think that's an important aspect of this first implication that we have to grasp because it seems to me that too many, too many professing Christians think just because they've been a Christian long time that their, their walk with God is where it ought to be. And it really has nothing to do with how long you've been saved. It is how have you been walking with Christ? Right? If you haven't been actually 
drinking in the word and responding to it properly, asking God to help you remove the characteristics of the old manner of life and replace it with the new characteristics of Christ and being renewed in the spirit of your mind, then you just might be an old infant spiritually. That's what the text would be saying. I couldn't speak to you as to spiritual, but as to infants in Christ. And, and we need, we need to realize that sometimes we think just, just being there is actually going to change us. But it's not that. It's actually that we hear and we listen and we respond. That's how we grow. Right. In some ways, it's like in Proverbs where it says that, that the prudent man foresees the evil and passes by the naive goes on and is punished, right? As the difference between these two people is one has learned to see things truly and respond to them. The other one may have walked through that mud pit 85 times and they just walk right back into it again because they're naive and foolish. And sometimes all people do is recycle the same poor experience of the Christian life again and again and again. Right? They just repeat the same failures again and again and again because they don't actually learn from them under the light of God's word. And it's the learning from God's word is what produces the maturity. So it's evaluated experience under the light of God's word that produces wisdom and maturity. So, so we can't Make that kind of mistake about maturity. I hate to break it to you, but that was all the first implication. Second implication, all right? And they're shorter, they're shorter, all right? Prolonged, prolonged immaturity is not acceptable and it's not expected. All right, so he is talking about progress from being an infant in Christ to being spiritual, but he is not in any way saying that this is acceptable. <laughs> It's actually, he's saying it's, it's rebukable. It's something that should be challenged. I, I should have been able to talk to you with this wisdom that we're talking about, but, but I couldn't because of your sinful choices you were making. He's not, he's not going, well, hey, it's just natural when someone gets saved that they're going to be a carnal Christian. He's like, no. You, you would, you would, you wouldn't accept like this, you know, this, this child of mine is still, you know, a baby at 15. You'd be going, the goal is to help this child grow up and you ought to be growing up, but you're not. It's not acceptable. It's not expected. It's not, it's not a way to frame out like somebody, sometimes they do with this, right? There's natural man carnal Christian, spiritual Christian. And what they do is they turn those into plateaus and they say there's some kind of crisis experience between them that are the key. You're a natural man and you come to Christ and you become a carnal Christian and you're going to be there until you get dedicated and then you become spiritual. That is just a grid imposed on this. That's not at all what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, Everyone who's in Christ has the spirit in him or her and should be growing up to maturity. 
but you're stagnant in your growth because you're choosing sinfully. Right? There's no, there's no, like, well, yeah, that's, you know, it just, it's sort of going to be like that until we can get them to make some kind of dedication decision. That's, that's nowhere near what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that the normal, the normal pattern of the Christian life is progress and growth. That's the expected thing. Anyone any one of us that is lingering along in spiritual infancy are actually culpable because of it. There's no excuse for it. You're not where you should be if you're still an infant in Christ. You should be growing in godliness and the knowledge of Christ. You should be, you should be pursuing the task of working out your salvation with fear and trembling for God's at work in you to want and work for his good pleasure. He who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ. And so your heart should be to respond to it and grow, not be content living a life that is really a subnormal Christian existence. It is subnormal to live fleshly, to live as an infant spiritually. It is not God's will. It is not acceptable before Christ. It is something that ought to be a point of repentance in us, not embracing it as if, well, you know, maybe later I'll really get serious about this. Now, Christ bought you. You're not your own. He laid down his life for you. He died for you so that you would live for him. And his love for you should constrain you so that you're pursuing that with all of your heart. Third implication. And I want to make sure we don't miss this. Relational sins are extremely important. You know, here's the thing that we were, I think we're inclined to think. Well, yeah, somebody won't grow to spiritual maturity if they're messing around with immorality or, or they're, uh, you know, they're, they're cheating, stealing, you know, whatever. Pick the category of sin that you think is a big sin, right? And here's what I'd say. Yeah, you're probably true with all that, but let me toss in there jealousy. Let me toss in there, strife. Do you realize broken relationships within the body of Christ stunt your spiritual progress? If in your heart you are jealous of your brothers and sisters in Christ, you look at them with sort of a jaundiced eye, your first thought when you see somebody else prospering is to think evil about that. Well, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, what do you expect? They've been handed everything to them or, you know, they always get that. Or I, I know that person's just doing it to make a name for themselves or they're just like, if that's what's in your heart, that's what stunts your spiritual progress. And you'd be like, oh, well, I didn't steal anything. I didn't, you know, commit immorality. I didn't. And what we can do is we can create an entire buffer around our broken relationships and act like they have no effect on our walk with God. 
I can, I can, as long as I have a list of things that I'm not doing that are the bad sins, I can actually do all these other ones that are sins against one another's and it's okay. And this text is going, mm-mm. You know why the congregation of Corinth was not able to handle meat but had to have milk? is because of the relational sins within it. The broken relationships. The sinfulness in their heart toward other people. The things that they did to cause division or strife. And, and don't think civil war within the church. Think, here's, here I am. Here's my friend. And my friend's starting to be friendly with somebody that I don't like. So I'm going to say something about that person that keeps my friend close to me and won't go toward them. Do you, do you see what's happening there? I'm creating strife between two people for my own advantage, right? I'm going to keep my friend with me and not let them get sucked into other friendships because I don't want to be in that friendship and I don't want to lose my friend. And we might think, well, no one's like throwing rocks at each other in the church. But I'm telling you, that's saying I'm of, right? I want my clique. I want my group. I want my, my people and dividing them from others. And then we wonder why we don't have a heart for the word. We wonder why we're not growing like we know we should be growing. But it's because we're overlooking the dispositions of our heart, which are saying, God, I really don't want to go your way. Because your way says, rather than keep my friend from building a friendship with that person, I'm supposed to be actually displaying Christ-like love to both of them. I'm supposed to be moving to serve both of them. I'm not supposed to be about protecting myself. I'm supposed to be about loving Christ's sheep. And what we've effectively done is said, I want my way. Because at the root of all of this is recognizing that, remember I said, sinful practices stunt spiritual progress, all right? So, so both sinful practices and spiritual progress are matters of the heart. If my heart is inclined towards sinful practices, then it is inclined away from spiritual progress. My heart can't go both ways. If I'm holding on to strife and jealousy, I will not be able to pursue Christ like I should. My heart can't serve two masters. And if I'm loving the things that Jesus says I should be repenting of, then I'm not loving him. I'm not listening to him. And, And I am deceived and being deceived by that. Who rules in our heart? 
What sin does is it deceives and hardens the heart, Hebrews 3.13. So that I could actually think, and this is the part I'm trying to, I'm just trying to you know, hopefully pastorally walk us way through this, right? Because we'd be standing over here and we might be like getting every checkbox on our Bible reading. And we're in every church service. And we think, you know, everything's good with me and God. Because somehow we've allowed our heart to be deceived that when I speak evil of my brother and sister in Christ in order to keep my friend close to me, that I'm not sinning against God. We somehow shut God out of the equation so that our jealousy and strife isn't actually a response to God. I mean, I, well, I love Jesus. And you know what? John says, right, the person who says he loves God but hates his brother is a liar and does not know the truth. How can he love the one that he can't see when he hates the one he can? So I, I don't mean this in a snotty way, but I mean, if you've got a problem with that, your problem's with God, not me. If you can say to me, I can have jealousy and still love Jesus. I can engage in strife and still love Jesus. I would say, listen to what the word says, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Okay, the only reason you can say that is because your heart has become hardened and you're not feeling what you ought to be feeling in the conviction of the spirit. Your heart has been deceived, so you're not seeing what you ought to be seeing. And you need to see in the word that those kinds of things reveal a problem that has, is driving deep into your heart the seeds of enormous consequence of spiritual immaturity. You can't, you can't let it be tolerated there or it will bear damaging fruit in your life. Growth comes from a heart that listens to, follows Christ. My sheep hear my voice and follow me. The same passage, I quote Hebrews 3.13, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Two verses later, it says, quoting the Psalm, it says, today, hear his voice. And do not harden your heart as Israel did in the wilderness. When God speaks through his word, hear his voice and do not harden your heart. Right? When God speaks, we have to listen. And listening means we obey. When we start saying, I don't want to hear that. Right, because some of you, I, I almost guarantee some of you, I start going, this person, this person, this person. Some of you started in your heart going, I don't want to hear that. Because you know there's sin against this person that you need to make right. You know. It's not that you don't know. You know, and you don't want to be reminded. You don't want to hear it. I don't want to go down this path. So you didn't do it. But in your heart, you went, 
Because you don't want to listen. And not listening is hardening your heart. That's why Paul says here, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual. So here's all I'd ask you to do, especially as we start prayer week, start a new year. Is it possible that you have been tolerating some sin which is stunting your spiritual progress? And, and the evidence of that stunting might be you, you don't have a heart for the word like you used to have. You don't have a heart for prayer like you used to have. You used to want to serve Christ in the church, and you don't. Like, do you think God removed that from you? Do you think God took away your heart for the word? Do you think God took away your heart for prayer? Do you think God took away your heart to serve him? I don't think God did any of that. So what's causing it? What might be stunting your growth that you need to ask God to help you see and, and then own before him, confess it because he's promised he is faithful and righteous to forgive and to cleanse us, right? God, God will hear. God will give grace and mercy. The lack of progress in your life is not owing to God's stinginess. Right? There's a treasure, a treasure of grace and mercy available to us that we're supposed to come to boldly. What have we killed our appetite on? Right? Have we been feasting on the candy around the table? And now it comes time for the table of the Lord, and we have no appetite for it. Where's our heart? Where's our heart? Let's pray. Lord, please help us to be open and honest before you. Certainly, none of us have had a perfect 2023. We have all failed. Some, some have failed and recognized it and sought to return, seeking forgiveness and grace from you. Some might still be lingering, so to speak, in the, in the mud pile into which they had fallen. Lord, help them to see that there's cleansing with Christ. There's mercy that none of us should think that you will reject us, that, that somehow your, your, your heart toward us despises us because of this, but that you're a father calling your children home. Come home. And Lord, we thank you that you're so gracious and compassionate full of mercy and loving kindness, forgiving our sins and granting cleansing in Christ. Lord, as we seek you this year, help us to do so recognizing the danger of the kinds of sinful choices that might stunt our spiritual progress. 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.